series in particular, we've been looking at what it means to live as a remnant for Christ, right? Because we all feel that, we all know that in the world that we live in. The vast majority of people that we interact with on a daily basis do not share the same core belief about Jesus that we do, right? It doesn't animate them or change the way they live in the way that it should change the way that we live. And so Peter uses this word in 1 Peter of of exile. And in the first week, we walked through what it means to be an exile, right? Really quick, it was like a five-minute biblical theology of exile where we went, you know, we went from the Garden of Eden all the way to Revelation, right? We just like move like like a thousand miles an hour. Okay, but, but Peter uses that word. And it's this idea then of living in exile, even though maybe we're home. Now, for many of us, this is not our original home, um, but maybe for you, it is, right? But it still stands that whether you are actually from Galway or not, we sit here in this room as exiles. So what does it mean to live as a remnant, that small minority of people that are still putting their hands up and saying, I am going to follow Jesus? Right? That's what we've been looking at. And how do we do it faithfully? Right? How do we live as a faithful remnant? So we've been unpacking that over the last few weeks. And just to kind of give our, our recap, right? the first week, we talked about if we're going to live as a faithful remnant, then we need to be people who know Jesus. Like, that's where it starts, right? That's the base level that says, I need to know Jesus. And it's that idea, not just to know about Jesus, but to know Jesus at a deep core, who I am level. We need to, we need to be people who, at, at the way that we even understand the world, is through the lens of Christ. And so we talked about how we, how we do that. And one of the things that we talked about was this idea of, of what James K.A. Smith says, we need to curate the unconscious, the storehouse of governing stories. In other words, we need to, we need to know scripture, right? So that then we can, like, it can animate the way that we understand the world, right? As we know the story of Jesus, as we know, uh, like, as we know the scriptures. Because we need to be careful Because if we don't do that, then the things that we love and the things that we worship may not actually be what we think we love and we worship. Right? So this is one of the places that I think the author James K.A. Smith has been deeply helpful to me. Because he uses this this language. So he has a book that's actually called You Are What You Love. (laughs) And his proposition is this. We are what we love, but we may not love what we think. (laughs) Right? Because if we are not filling ourselves with the stories of God, if we are not worshiping, if we are not becoming people who know Jesus more, then oftentimes we'll look like, more like the world than we will like Jesus. And so we need to know Jesus. Then in the second week, Luke talked about this idea of being culturally discerning. That we need to be people who can look out at our world and say, that's good, that could use some help, and that is not good, right? We need to be people that, that have that ability to assess the things in our world, to say, is this something that I can just accept? Is it good? Is it fine? Because you know what? 
God created our world good, and even though it is broken, there is still a lot of good in our world. Right? And there's a lot of things as Christians we can say, hey, that is good. That is good. Right? And then there are things in this world that maybe our world twists. But at its core, it is still something that is good. It is something that then we can redeem. Right? We can look at and say, you know what? Maybe in the way it's being done is not good. But if I do it this way, then it is actually good. Right? I think actually a, maybe a, a great example um, is, is probably sex. Right? Like, we can look at that and say, the way that our world talks about it, acts about it, does things like, that's not good. But God created it, and it is good. And if we were to, you know, open our scripture and apply what it says to sexual ethics, it would be good, right? So it's the idea of, of redemption, right? And then there's the idea of rejection. There are things that our world says that we just need to say, nope, that's not good, <laughs> Right? Okay, so moving on swiftly from that, you can listen to that sermon. I would encourage you to listen. If you haven't heard these, I think each one of these, as I recap them, are really helpful. There's a reason that these are the five things that we chose to talk about, right? They're, they're really helpful. So then the third thing that we talked about last week was the idea of cultivating meaningful relationships in church. The idea that you are not just... You know, it is not simply a personal relationship with Jesus. That that relationship, while it is personal, is also communal. Right? It takes place with, it doesn't take place in a vacuum. It takes place with other people. Alright? And we have to be careful about the people that then we put into our lives and the people that we allow to speak into our lives. Who are the people that we allow to speak into our lives? Who are the people that we are in deep, meaningful relationship with? And it is important I would say that as many people as possible are followers of Jesus, right? Again, Nick unpacked all that. I'm not going to do it here. Go back and listen to it. It's up on, it's, uh, up on the podcast, okay? Um, and if you need help finding that, I can help, you, I can help you sort that out. All right, so this week, we're going to be talking about the idea of living vocationally, all right? And maybe you're like, I don't understand what that means. Well, welcome to the sermon. We're going to be unpacking what that means to live vocationally. So there's this quote by Annie Dillard. It's a famous quote, and it goes like this. It's up on the screen. There you go. How we spend our days is how we spend our lives. Right? And it's one of those quotes where, like, when you really look at it, you're like, well, no kidding. That's pretty obvious. But when you really start to think about it, it kind of it can, it can lead you to pause and go, oh, boy, well, how am I living my days? Right? Because the day, the hours add up to days, and the days add up to years, and the years add up to our lives. Right? And so how we spend our days, the things that we spend doing, it's how we spend our lives. And how do we want to spend our lives? I think all of us, we want our lives to be meaningful. We want our lives to matter. And, you know, here's the thing. We spend a really big chunk of our lives at work. Right? Now, that may look different for each and every person. Right? Maybe you're a stay-at-home parent. Maybe you are a pastor at a church. <laughs> Maybe, you know, you, you're a professor at a university. I'm, you know, I'm just throwing these out, picking them at random. Not that anybody in here is any of these things. Right? You know, like, right? I mean, I could go on. Preschool teacher, you know, just looking out of the room. You know, not, but anyway. Right? We spend a good chunk of our lives. In fact, I, I did look this up, just so you know. Ireland is not top of the list on like workaholic cultures. Okay, so that's a good thing. That's a good, that's a good base. At least we're not, you know, 
way up there. There are people, there are countries much worse than us when it comes to, to work. But the average Irish person will spend 39.4 years of their lives at work. Like going to work, not necessarily like, okay, hold on, just stay, bear with me. So that means like from the time you start work to the time, you know, it's about 40 years, somewhere in there, right? Okay, so 40 years of our lives will be spent working. And per week, the Irish, average Irish person will spend 35.5 hours at work. Okay, like I said, that's actually not terrible when you look globally at the amount of time people spend at work, but still, that adds up. If you figure you're only awake for about 16 hours a day, assuming we're all getting eight hours of sleep, right? <laughs> I, I know, that's a bold assumption. <laughs> Fine, make it 17, you got seven hours of sleep, still a decent night's sleep, right? Okay, whatever. You know what I'm saying. It's a good chunk. In fact, it's about a third. It's about a third of our waking time we spend at work. That, that's if you include the weekends. If you don't include the weekends, right, if you just include the five-day work week, I mean, we're spending about roughly half of our waking hours at work. And yet, how many of us actually think about our work as something vocational, as something meaningful? And here's what I mean by vocational, okay? When people tend to talk about, I have a vocation, right? I think about, especially in Ireland, I think this word is used for somebody becoming a priest, right? It's doing something really holy, right? Oh, they have a vocation, right? It's this like, oh, very holy, right? When you start using that word. And so it's like, yeah, I work. I got a job. They have a vocation. But, but that person, they have a vocation. Here's what I want us to understand. Each one of us should live vocationally. In other words, seeing what we do as more than just a job that we go to but seeing it as a vocation, as something holy. We usually see work as a necessary evil or a means to an end, right? I think most of us, and look, I'll be honest, like this has not always been my job. You know, this is what I, I love doing. It's what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to be like in, in vocational ministry, if we want to say it that way. Maybe I'm undercutting myself here. Um, but to say like, like what I do, Something around that. That's what I want to do for the rest of my life. And thank God I've been, I'm able to do it. Right? But that hasn't always been me. Like, you know, like the, the previous me was an assistant manager at a sporting goods shop. Right? Listen, it's hard to see that as a vocation. It's hard when your boss actually doesn't like you. I mean, go figure. I mean, come on. But like when, like, when she doesn't appreciate you or think you're as amazing as I think I am, you know? Like, like it's, you know, anyway, you know what I'm saying. Right? When you have a job where it's mundane, like honestly, I struggle going there. Like I am like literally checking people out at the till as they buy things they don't need that are overpriced. <laughs> I mean, you guys have gone to places like this. You know, it's expensive, right? You want to buy a jersey for your local team? Like it's cost a fortune, right? I'm selling people things they don't need at prices that they probably can't really sustainably afford. And, uh, my boss doesn't like me, and yeah, I'm pretty much like, yeah, sure, I'll go get you that shoe size. You know, like that. It's hard, okay? I get that. I want to name that. So what I'm talking about, I understand, is not always easy for everybody. Not everybody gets to do what they always dreamed of. You know, not everybody gets to be the astronaut they thought they would be when they were a kid, or not everybody gets to do those things, right? So it's like saying, how in my whole life in, do I live vocationally? 
How do I live, even in a job I may not like, as if it is holy? All right, so that's what we're unpacking this morning. And here's what I think we need to do to understand. The Reformation, okay, and we don't sit up here and talk about the Reformation a lot, is really important. Okay, so there's a Catholic uh, philosopher by the name of Charles Taylor, and he actually says one of the most important movements, one of the things that happened in the Reformation, one of the most earth-shattering or culture-changing things that happened in the Reformation was this idea of seeing our lives through the lens of of vocation. All right? So John Calvin, for instance, to to use as an example, saw a a, a sort of two-system thing going on. When he looked at the way that the church was acting in that time, right, there was the holy people who became priests. They became nuns. They became monks. And they lived holy and set apart on everyone else's behalf. And then there's everybody else who has a job and they do their own thing and, and whatever. And so the people who aren't the monks or the nuns or the priests or, or, or you know, the people in religious orders or whatever, they, they went, you know what, hey, I just got a job. I do my thing. I go to church. Those people are holy for me. Um, they do the holy stuff. You know, they're the churchy people. And then I'm just me. Right? And so thank goodness for them because they help me get closer to God by being extra holy on my behalf. Right? So I give to the church and all of those sorts of things so that they can do all of that holy stuff and I can just be me and do what I want. Okay? So you have this like bifurcation. That's the big word, right? You know, the split in the two where you've got like kind of two lanes, two groups of people doing their own thing. And hey, it's kind of like a symbiotic thing. Like, hey, you do this for me and you do this for me. So you make me my bread. You give me my money. I'll be holy over here and, and, and pray all day. And Calvin looked at that and he said, that's not, that's not right. That's not what I see in scripture. When I read things like, like the priesthood of all believers, like what does that mean? Right? And so he said, no, everybody's work is holy. And he is the, the, the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. You know, maybe, maybe in, in our church we, we could say uh, the accountant, the engineer, and the... Uh, what? Yeah, and the preschool teacher. I've already used that. Or the, the, you know, the fitness instructor, right? You know, that all of those jobs are, are holy. Okay? And so that's what I think we, we need to understand and we need to unpack. So what the Reformation did, and again, like I said, I'm bringing this up because it's important. There used to be a, a separation between what was sacred and what was secular. And I don't think it was helpful. One of the reasons I'm not Catholic, you know, hey, I, look, I don't think that that was a helpful separation, right? Instead, it was a bringing together of the sacred and the secular to say, even at our secular jobs, they are still sacred, all right? And I think that's important for you guys to understand the things that you do with your life, all of life is worship. In fact, that's like, that's a really important thing for us to understand, all of life is worship. And so we train our hearts to live to live out our vocation. Now, there's an introduction. Let's unpack this, okay? Next few minutes. I think that as we read in Genesis chapter 1, so if you want to turn, so Genesis chapter 1, I mean, we're on like, let's see, uh, for my, in my Bible, it's page 2, but it's still Genesis chapter 1. So Genesis chapter 1, 
verse 27. And we're going we're to start there. And we're going to go all the way to 30. So we'll read Genesis 1, 27 to 30. And then we're going to see, I think, this idea of, of how we see that work is holy and how it can change the way that we live and, and what we do. All right? So let's, let's read this together. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I've given every green plant as food for the wild animals, the birds of the sky, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Everything that has life. And that is what happened. And I'm just going to read 31 as well. Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the sixth day. Did you catch that? What, what existed in the garden? God says it's very good. But what existed in the garden from the very beginning? We've got plants, we've got animals, right? we've got food, all that kind of stuff. But there's something un, kind of unsaid but said in that text. Work. You catch that? Like, I think most of us have probably grown up with this idea that, like, you know, when Jesus returns, I won't have to work anymore. It's like permanent retirement, kick my feet up, like, right, like, that's it. There's no work, there's no nothing. But yet, here in the garden, when all is good, all is perfect, there is work. Now, it's not toil, it doesn't say toil. It's it. But, right, there is a cultivation, a, a, they are to be fruitful and multiply. Maybe for some of you, you're like, that's not work. Um, right, but they, um, but they're to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, to govern it, to reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the animals that scurry along the ground. There is work here, but it's still very good, and this I think is really important. Work is not evil. Work is not bad. Work is good. However. Because we live, in a, you know, Genesis chapter 3 is coming, right? And we live in a broken and sinful world. Work becomes toil. We have bosses that, for whatever reason, don't like us. We have bosses that we don't like. You know, we have, we have uh, unfair treatment. We, you know, maybe you work in retail. You have customers or parents or whatever that treat you badly. You have kids that you stay at home parent. You have kids that don't seem to appreciate you. You know, you all these sorts of things, right? Like, we all know that work now is often toil. But at its core, work is not bad. Work is good. Okay, and in fact, we are called to work. The first thing I think that we see as we look at this passage, as we unpack it, is that we are called to image God. Okay, you and I are called to image God. So first we have to just kind of unpack that for a moment. Right, so Genesis 1.27. So God created human beings in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So what does it mean to image God? Okay. Here's something that I think is really important. Okay. And this is a bit of a side note, but I think it's really, okay, I, I think it's worthwhile. So I, I, hope, I hope you hear this. Because I think so often we, we struggle with what does it actually mean to be the image of God? Right? What does it mean to be the image of God? 
And, and there's been several answers to that question. Some people have said, well, it's because we have uh, a certain type of, you know, because we can uh, rationalize or reason. That's, that's the image of God. Because we can live in relationship, that's the image of God. Because we can work or do these things, that's the image of God. Like, but here's something that's really important because I think in an attempt to answer that question, sometimes we forget about some of the marginalized people in our society or the people that we maybe don't often think about unless we have someone in our life like that. What about a person with a severe disability? What about a baby in the womb? Because the unintended consequence of saying that the image of God is based on something like you do is if you can't do it, are you still the image of God? Right? And this is where I think it's important to say that as we talk about this, whatever we say the image of God is, if we truly believe, as Christians have throughout history, that the unborn child, that the baby, that the disabled are all the image of God, then we have to be really careful about what we say. Okay? And here's where I think it's helpful grammatically here. Is this word in can also be translated as as or to be. God created human beings as his own image or to be his own image. And I think that kind of helps us to understand that in language there. What is actually being said here? So here's the thing. You are the image of God because you are a human being. Okay? That's the only... Human beings are the only people, the only creation that God said is his image. Right? And you, as his creation... As a human, are his image. So that means every person on this earth, whether they do it well or not, bears God's image. Okay? And it may be broken, and it may be marred, and the people may, you know, again, you know people like this. They, they may live horrible lives, disgusting lives. They are the image of God. They still matter, and they still have value. They are the image of God, albeit broken and marred. But it also means that those who just who can't understand it, can't help, help themselves. Right? I think of, of a friend of mine. His brother was in a... Um, they, were, they were together in a car accident, and his brother was left essentially in a, in a vegetative state. It has been for years and years and years. That he didn't cease to be the image of God now because he you know, can't reason or, 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 or things like that. Right? He is still the image of God. Because he is a human. And by being a human, he is the image of God. Okay, so I think, hopefully that, that little side note is helpful. To me, I, I just think it's one of those things, as a church, we've got to work through and process. Okay, but to come back, the image of God, we are the image of God. And as the image of God, God has given us a task. Right? There is task there. Right? There's language of saying, here's what you do because you're the image of God. Okay? Now, if somebody just physically isn't able to do it, then, then it's not a problem, right? It's not an issue. But if you are physically able, here's what you're supposed to do. Here's, as the image of God, what it looks like to live out in the world, to show the world what God is like, to reflect God out into the world. And even there, I think there are ways that, that people who are disabled can, can do that. Okay? Alright. But we've given, it includes a task or a mission. We are to be God's representatives and agents in the world. So in other words, we are charged with the job of caring for and cultivating God's creation. And so it is actually a very human thing to do to work 
but it is also a very holy thing to do because we image God. I love the way Michael Heiser says this. He says, there is nothing we do that God could not accomplish himself. Nothing we do that God could not accomplish himself. But he has not chosen that method. Rather, he tells us what his will is and commands his loyal children to get the job done. Right? So you and I are called to image God in the world. Okay? That's the first thing. Second thing. You and I are called to cultivate creation's potential. Okay? So we see this as we keep reading. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I have given every green plant as food for the wild animals and the birds in the sky and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And that is what happened. So God calls the creation very good. And in this very good creation, there is still work. But God has created the world with potential. So even there, the garden is is laid out there. And God could have cultivated the garden himself. God could have continued to prune the trees and to take care of this and to take care of that. You know, and to name the animals, all that sort of thing. But what does he do? He says, humans, you do it. Because you're my image on earth to reign with me. Right? So he gives humans that job. God creates the world with this potential. And then he gives humans the task to co-create or as Tolkien put it in one of his, uh, like a small short story, um, that we are sub-creators. Right? God is the creator, but even as human beings, we get to create. And that's actually a way that we image God. Right? Creation doesn't come, you know, when, when God created the, the earth or the world, like he didn't create it with a school. Right? There was no university. There were no... There were no iPhones, right? There was no, none of that, right? Humans have done that. There were no museums. There were no automobiles. There were none of that sort of stuff, right? But it was created with the raw materials and the potential that humans were given and said, take that, run with it, rule and reign. Okay? Now, with that said, that is, in the world was very good. Right? That's the ideal, is that human beings, under the authority of God, go out into the world and make the world a better place. Right? We, we innovate, we enhance, we, we serve, we care for the creation. Whether that be other human beings, whether that be you know, the plants and the animals, or whatever, we care for that. Okay? And at its best, that is very good. That is what you and I were called to do. But we also understand that... Uh, there are a lot of creations in this world that have not been good. Right? There are a lot of things that we can point to and go, mm, that's not good. Creation isn't neutral. The things that we make as human beings are not all neutral. Right? And I'll leave it to you to sit and think about the things that have been made in our world that are not good. We could probably go down a philosophical rabbit hole about a lot of things. Right? But there's been a lot of things in our world that have been marred or created that were not good. And even there, if we aren't careful, our creative impulses or our, our, 
our, our working days can actually turn into striving, into striving for success, into striving for striving's sake, into striving for status, into striving for proving to everybody that you're actually worth it. And I don't know what your struggle is in that. There's probably something there. Whether you feel like you've grown up being told, you know what, you're not worth it, you're not good, you, you, know, you have no potential. Maybe you had a teacher that told you you were stupid. Maybe all the other kids called you names. Maybe your parents told you you were worthless or, or you know, whatever it may be. And, and maybe your work and your striving becomes a way to prove to everybody, you know what, forget you, I am smart, I am better, I am good enough. Maybe you grew up in a, in a great home and your parents always told you how, how amazing you were and how wonderful and how smart and how you could do whatever you wanted and you were a snowflake in the world. And so even there, now you're striving. It's, it's actually the same thing. It's to prove to everyone, I am that. I am what I've been called. Look at me. I, you know, Right? Whatever it may be for you, there is a temptation there that our work actually becomes an idol or other things become an idol and my work becomes a means to an end to prove to everybody else or to prove to myself or to be successful or to have lots of money. Like, there's lots of ways that our work can go wrong in this world, right? And so we have to be careful that this world of, and this is where I think cultural discernment comes into this and even our own discernment on, on who we are deep down as people is is important because the consumerism and the get aheadism to use the you know that's I didn't make that word up it was actually in a book um, but it was too good not to use get aheadism I like that um, but yeah but but that sort of like cultural consumerism and get aheadism like it is ingrained deeply in us and this is why again we were talking about this idea of needing to form ourselves of knowing Jesus of of letting the stories of Jesus deeply move us and impact us. Because was Jesus consumed by consuming? Absolutely not. Was he consumed by get aheadism? No way. And so we want to be people that are formed in the image of God and that act like Jesus, not people that just blindly end up without thinking about it, following the ways of our world. You guys with me? No, there's a lot. Sorry. <laughs> Take a breath. Okay. We are called to work in image-bearing, God-glorifying ways and to cultivate creation. And I think one of the things, again, knowing scripture is really important. One of the things that's helpful for us in this, if we want to cultivate well, is again to look at how work is good in Genesis 1 and 2. But then to flip to the end of the story, right? To Revelation 21 and 22 where we continue to see God's desires for creation. So how do we create in selfless and good ways? Right? We look at that, those passages, I think, are helpful to see that the, the shalom, right? That, that's, a, that's just a wonderful word, shalom, because it carries this idea of peace in every direction. This is something, again, we, we don't have quite a bit at church, but I think it's worth saying over and over again. This idea of shalom, I think, is best summarized in this peace with God, peace with myself, Peace with other people, peace with creation. So four directions. Peace, holistic, whole, complete peace. That's what God desires, right? And so as humans, we work for that. We strive towards that. But not in a, in a again, not a sinful strive. Alright? I'll leave, I'll leave Revelation 21 and 22 for a moment. We'll come back there. But let's move on to the third thing. We occupy creation. 
Right? And I actually like this phrase, right? Because he could have said, you know, something like, uh, I don't know, I was... We just leave it at occupy. I, I like that phrase because, because here's the thing. I think the other temptation is to just retreat. Right? And Christians throughout history have done this, right? We just retreat into a little hole. We don't talk to anybody. We keep stay insular. We do our own thing. And we just kind of retreat in, in, into ourselves. We just kind of implode into ourselves or something. But I like the idea of occupy because it involves us going out into the world to be people who stand, who, who stand in places that may be hostile towards Jesus or Jesus. We occupy the creation. We live in the world. This, you know, for right now, this is our home. And someday Jesus is going to return and we have the idea of a new heavens and a new earth, right? Like the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, but it comes down to earth. In Jesus, we see Jesus coming down to earth, right? Like earth is our home and it will be renewed and restored one day and it will be new heavens, new earth. But like, this is where God has put us. And we occupy this place. We live in this place. We don't spend all of our time, now I'm not saying we shouldn't spend any time, but we don't spend all of our time thinking about escaping up somewhere to, you know, up to the heavens where I'll sit on a cloud and play a harp and everything will be wonderful. No, we live earthly lives. We say, we're here and while I am here, I will make the most of my life. And I will make that one third of my life that I spend at work matter and count for God's kingdom. All right, so we occupy, we bear witness to the world that the kingdom of God is coming. I love, again, I'm going to come back to James K. A. Smith. Here he comes again. Here's what he says. We are called to be witnesses, not necessarily winners. And I like that. Because we live in a world <laughs> where there is such a, a push to be a, a winner. Talladega Nights come to mind. Yeah, my mind, but we'll, we'll leave that aside. Yeah. If you're not first, you're last. Yeah. Yeah. But we, we are called to be witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Witnesses to the good news that Jesus is coming. That he has come and he is coming again. Right? The death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the second coming of Jesus. We are called to bear witness to that. And that is good news for our world, right? We are not called to necessarily be cultural winners. So we live what some have key, uh, coined as faithful presence, with faithful presence in the world. It means wherever God has you, wherever you are, whoever you're with, you bear witness faithfully for Jesus. All right? So here's the question What are your work goals? What are your work goals? How do they fit in with what we've just been talking about? Right? Because again, we have grown up in a world that says like, you know what, you need to do this because it makes lots of money. Right? You need to take up this career because it'll, it'll, it'll make you lots of money or it'll do, you know, whatever it may be. Right? There's a million, we could probably think of a myriad of things that have said. And for those of you who are parents, here's a question. What are your work goals for your kids? Because I've known people that have said, you know what, I feel called into ministry. And their parents, who have raised them in church, who have spent their whole lives in church, go, no, 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 no. There's no money in that. You should be a doctor. Right? And it caused a lot of tension in the family when they said, no, I'm going to go into ministry. And you think like, what? Wait, that doesn't make any sense. Well, sure it does. 
in our world. And here's what Barna found in the, in the book. You know, we've talked about uh, Faith for Exiles. In the book, what they found, statistically, now this is American, so take it through what you think it's worth, but that statistically, the goals for Christian parents for their kids are actually exactly the same as the goals for people who have nothing to do with church. And so I think as parents, we need to be careful that what we're telling our kids, what we're expressing to our kids, is actually a model of vocation that says, you, what I want for you is to live for Jesus wherever God puts you. And you know what? Money isn't what's important. All those things are not what's important. What is important is that you are faithfully following Jesus where he leads you. And his parents being okay with wherever that might be. Right? And we all, if you're a parent, you know, and even if you're not, even if you just like are like, man, I'd love to have kids someday. You have hopes and dreams for those imaginary kids. Right? And those of us who are parents, we have hopes and dreams for our kids. We just need to be careful and make sure that they align with the way of Jesus. Right? Because we want our kids to have the same attitude. Alright? So, what are your work goals? I think that's important to ask. And are they in any way different from your neighbors? So here's, here's where I, we're, we're going to make a transition here. Because we've been talking a lot about, about like, you know, head, you know we unpacking, we're unpacking Genesis, all that kind of stuff. But here's what I want to come back to. Again, just to kind of recap, there was work in Eden, and it was good. It was very good, in fact. Because it was work as it was created to be. And work is still good. Alright? But now we do it in the context of a fallen world. Alright, so there's there's our recap. But one day, and here's again, coming back to Revelation, that we see, one day, Jesus will return, and all shall be well. There will still be work, but it will be redeemed. It's interesting to me, in, in Revelation 21, 24 to 26, we could read that actually, if you want. Um, do you know what? Yeah, let's just, you know what? I was about to say, no, for the sake of time, let's not read the Bible. That sounds like a terrible thing to say. <laughs> Lord, forgive me. Because uh, <clears throat> what God has to say is a lot more important than what I, I have to say. Revelation 21, 24 to 26. We read this. The nations will walk in its light. This is the new Jerusalem. The nations will walk in its light and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day because there is no night there. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So here's what we see. We see the kings of the world and all the nations bringing their glory and honor into the city. But you know what? We've actually read this before. If you've read the book of Isaiah, you have read this before. This is one of the things. Guys, the Old Testament and the New Testament is so interconnected. Like, right? Because you could have read that and actually if you've never really read the Old Testament, you have no idea that what John is doing there is basically recapping the promises from Isaiah chapter 60. And so, in Isaiah chapter 60, did I bookmark that? Was I smart enough? I did not. Isaiah chapter 60. All right? In Isaiah chapter 60, I did bookmark it. I just couldn't see the bookmark. All right, Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 to 7. We read, Arise, Jerusalem, let your light shine for all to see. For the glory of the Lord rises to shine on you. Darkness as black as night covers all the nations of the earth. But the glory of the Lord rises and appears over you. All the nations will come to your light. 
Mighty kings will come to see your radiance. Look and see, for everyone is coming home. Your sons are coming from distant lands. Your little daughters will be carried home. Your eyes will shine and your heart will thrill with joy. For merchants from around the world will come to you. They will bring you the wealth of many lands. Vast caravans of camels will converge on you. The camels of Midian and Ephah. The people of Sheba will bring gold and frankincense and will come worshiping the Lord. Also gold, frankincense. Hopefully you Merry Christmas, everyone. Hope you got that. Um, sorry. The flocks of uh, Kedar will be given to you and the rams of Neboioth will be brought before my al- will be brought for my altars. I will accept their offerings and I will make my temple glorious. Um, sorry, and then if we go to uh, verse 11, here's where things get familiar again. Just skipping down. Your gates will stay open day and night to receive the wealth of many lands. The kings of the world will be led as captives in a victory procession. Let's move to 19. This whole chapter is gold, by the way, but 19. No longer will you need the sun to shine by day, nor the moon to give its light by night. For the Lord your God will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. And we can just keep going because it is wonderful. But here's what we see. Guys, we see the world carrying their treasures into Jesus and laying them at His feet. Right, The things that have been worked for, the things that have been strived for, it all belongs to God. And that is being recognized here. It is all being brought before Him and said, here you go, this is yours. So often when we get caught up in, in worldly success or worldly striving, it's going, this is mine, look what I've got. We turn into Gollum, right? Listen, Tolkien was a Christian, okay? And when he, like, it's not an accident that Gollum is the way he is, right? Um, in any case, as human beings, when we give in to that desire for all of these things, that's exactly what we turn into. We go from Schmeagle to Gollum. Right? I've got that right, isn't it? It's not Schmeagle to Gollum, right? Yeah. Yes, okay. Sorry, all of a sudden I got nervous about any Tolkien fans in the room, I could get in real trouble. Um, yeah. So anyway, moving on. I love how in, in Revelation 22.3, there's no longer a curse. Work is back to its redeemed state. No longer, it says, will there be a curse on anything. So here's what I think we've seen. You and I are made to create beauty to cultivate abundance and to generate order. That's Sky Jathani is an author. Again, sometimes people just put things in a way better way than I would. Um, and so I just thought that was beautiful. So I decided to use it. You were made to create beauty, to cultivate abundance and generate order. Those are the things that we see in Genesis chapter 1 there that people are called to do. And that's what you were made to do. And you can do that anywhere. Right? You can do that working on an assembly line in a factory. You can do that working from home in your office. These are all things that you can do, and this is God's design for work. We okay, get on the right slide. We are called to image God at our workplaces, not just in what we say and how we act, but also in the way we work. And so we need to begin to imagine God's promises for us differently. Or, sorry, not promises, purposes. If I could read my own handwriting. We need to begin to imagine God's purposes for us differently. 
and begin to cultivate a godly imagination for our work. And this is where, again, knowing the scriptures and praying and fasting and, and you know, sp- practicing spiritual practices like, like a Sabbath, like things like that, all of that begins to come into play. Just as Luke talked about this morning, you are not just a brain, you are a body, a whole person. And when we do these things, it actually teaches us it teaches our whole bodies, our soul, our spirit to be in line with God. You know, like all of, there is so many, like, to use the word, liturgies in our world that are shaping and forming us. And when we come to church or when we, when we spend time with God, all of that is shaping us into someone so that then we can begin to imagine actually God's purposes for us. It is not all about getting this or that or proving to somebody or whatever it may be for you. It is not about that. We can begin to imagine differently. Imagine these things that I'm talking about. And that's the thing. I want it to move from our heads to our hearts. To speak down into who we are as a person. You are the image of God. You have been created by God to work and to create and to cultivate and to shape the world into what he wants it to be. And you know what? Until Jesus returns, it is not going to be perfect, okay? But we can be working in this world to make the world more like what God always wanted it to be. That's amazing, guys. Like, to me, I'm like, holy smokes. Like, you know, that is a different purpose. It is a different way of living. I, you know, every mundane task, every little thing that I do has a purpose. Every little thing that I do actually makes the world more like what Jesus wants. More like what God created it to be. And when we begin to see our lives and our work that way, all of a sudden, in a world that is seemingly so often meaningless, just like, like the author of Ecclesiastes, like Solomon says, like it is all meaningless, right? He says, I've tried it all. Forget it, it's meaningless. Because he, as he says in Ecclesiastes 2, was just chasing after the wind. But when it's not just chasing after the wind, when it's something that has eternal significance, that changes everything. All right. We're going to fly through this next part. How do we do that? Okay, how do we do that? How do we make sure that we live faithfully at our workplaces and show the world the shalom of God? Because all of this sounds really big and lofty, doesn't it? It sounds really wonderful. Like, oh, that's great. How do I do that? <laughs> and that's always the big question, isn't it? And it's something I've been thinking about throughout the week. How do we do this? How do we do what Paul says in Colossians 3.17? Right? He says, whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Here's the thing. That passage, I think, in Colossians is the goal of everything we're about to talk about. Right? We want to be that kind of person. That in everything that we do, we give thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ. As a representative. Do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus. That's what we want to do. That's really when we break down the core essence of everything we've just been talking about. Maybe I should have just read that verse and been done with the whole beginning of the sermon, right? <laughs> you know, yeah, maybe you should. Uh, but, you know, like, all right? But how do we do that? How do we become this kind of person? And I think this is where our previous practices are, are important, okay? Our previous practices are important, but we're not going to unpack them. All right, that's up to you to go back and listen to the sermon or like, you know, to remember, like look at your notes because I know we're all taking notes here. Um, I know I faithfully take notes every Sunday, yeah, right? Um, but if you're a note-taking person, you can go back in your notes, right? Or you can go listen to it or try and recall in your mind. We talked about in the first week because again, I'm terrible at alliteration, um, right? So the idea of prayer, scripture, silence, and solitude, 
and Sabbath, that these things are actually really important. Again, like, like I said that time, we could argue whether or not we're required to take a Sabbath, whether that's like, you know, because again, Jesus didn't say that. So then, you know, again, there, you get the debate back and forth. Of, yes, you have to keep the Sabbath. And no, we no longer have to keep the Sabbath under the new covenant. I'm of the opinion, who cares? Okay, I mean, obviously, I, you know, if it is that Jesus commands that I do care, I'm going to do it. But at the same time, it's seeing it as a blessing. See for what it is. God created it and gave it to people because it's good, right? Right? Jesus says, man was made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for, I should get that right. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, right? It was to be a blessing, a time to relax, to rest, and pray, to worship, to pray, right? So it's a great blessing. Take it, you know, run with it. Prayer, scripture, silence and solitude, sound. We talked about those things. Those things are going to be really important if we're going to live out our vocation in the world. If we're going to live out for Jesus. We talked about the idea of participating in the life and worship of the church. I mean, we had a whole sermon on that last week. So I, I, I don't want to completely redo that all over again. But here's the thing. And Luke hinted again about this earlier. When we come to church, it's not just purely a one-way street. Right? And I think sometimes we look at church like, what is church? Church is a place where I come to worship God. Right? Yes. 100%. Okay? So hear me. I'm not saying that's wrong. <laughs> right? But what if church was actually more? What if church was not just a place where I come to worship God, purely one-way street, everything going up, pew, right? What if it's also the place where God comes to meet us, a place where God meets us in a unique and special way? And so it is important that you and I are a part of a church. Now, I realize I'm speaking to the choir today. Okay, you guys are all here. But listen, no, what you're doing right now is incredibly important. And it is not just while worshiping God, while doing that, while that act is, is incredibly important and incredibly formative. I think we also have to understand the Spirit is, is at work, even right now, in our service. I mean, we're going to take communion here in a minute. And my goodness, I think the Spirit is actively involved in that. It is a tangible thing. We taste and we see that the Lord is good. And I think the Spirit comes in and ministers to us as we actually literally take the gospel into our mouths. Right? The good news of what Jesus has done. Okay, so these things, we participate in the life of the church. Church is not just upward worship, but is also a downward meeting of Christ and His. Alright? So this it is a two-way street church. So, being part of a church is unbelievably important. For many, many reasons. Here's another thing that I would say. Be intentional and be deliberate at your work. Practice being intentional and being deliberate. If you're like me, you have a tendency to kind of float through the world. Right? That is my natural state. My, the natural state of just kind of goes through the go, you know, like moves through the world as if he's floating and just kind of takes it as it comes. Okay? And maybe you're like that. Maybe that's like your natural state too. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. And this is something I've had to learn over and over in my life. Be intentional and be deliberate. Everyone will thank you. Um, although sometimes there is a need for those of us who are just kind of like, hey, it's going to be fine. Right? But at the same time, I also know I need to be a person who's deliberate and intentional. Because you know what? If I want to live for, for Jesus at work and I just show up and I don't think about it and I'm not deliberate and I'm not intentional and I just float around, guess what? I'm not living intentionally for Jesus. I need to be deliberate 
going to need to be intentional. Don't assume that working for Jesus will just happen naturally without effort. Okay? I'm not saying that God won't you know, work in your life or anything like that, but at the same time, this is something I've like learned over the years, and some of you have been Christians longer than I have know this. Like, following Jesus takes effort. And for those of us who just wanted to come to us, like, you know, it doesn't always work that way. We put in the effort. There is reward. Right? There is. And the reward is Jesus and knowing Him more and living for Him more and being intentional and being deliberate is important. Fourth, get plugged in with other Christians at your workplace if you can. If there are other Christians at your workplace, plug into those, with those people. If you share something in common with them, right? You work at the same place and you follow Jesus. That is, you know, one more thing than you probably have with most people at your work, right? And even there, that whole knowing Jesus thing, that's a whole lot more substantive and important than saying like, oh, well, we follow, you know, we can talk about the results, you know, that Connick beat Ospreys yesterday or, or whatever, or the weather, or, you know, I mean, it's the thing we're all good at here, right? Talking about the weather. You know, like, to actually have something substantive to talk about and meaningful, and we can work with each other. So what I would say is, find a mentor, be a mentor to somebody. Pour into somebody's life. Have somebody pouring into your life. This is something I'm realizing in my, you know, more and more in my life. I need more people pouring into my life. I need to find those people. I need to have those people in my life that are pouring into my life, and so do you. All right. The last thing, and we're, we're nearly, nearly there is that instead of asking the question, what would Jesus do, right? Who's heard that, like that phrase? Who maybe got a bracelet at some point and said, what would Jesus do? I'm not going to say that that's like, okay, if you're like somebody who goes, man, that's how I live my life. I ask, what would Jesus do? I'm not like, I'm not dumping on that, okay? Like, just just hear me out. I just want to shift something a little bit. I think instead of asking, what would Jesus do? It might be more helpful to ask, what did Jesus do? (laughs) To look at his life and say, what did Jesus do? Because then I'm, I'm keeping Jesus in, you know, in the context that we have of, of Jesus' actions in Scripture, right? I'm keeping them in that context. Like, Jesus was a first century Jew who lived, like, you know, I can look at what he actually did and then say, now what should I do? And I think maybe you're going like, okay, that's really what's behind the what would Jesus do thing. And like, okay, fine, fair enough. All right? But I, for me, anyway, that's a helpful turn to say, what did Jesus do? Right? So then in my mind, I'm not like imagining, you know, I'm I'm thinking about, I'm not imagining Jesus in some sort of like power suit in a boardroom, you know, not that I'm ever in a power suit in a boardroom, but but you know what I mean? Like, I'm not like going, you know, like, oh, what would Jesus do if he was here in a power suit in a boardroom? Like, you know, like, you know, like, it's going like, no, hold on. Jesus treated even the people he didn't like kindly. He wasn't always nice, but he was kind. Okay? And we could, differ, we could spend time differentiating that. But he was kind. He cared for even those who were his enemies. He had integrity. Right? We see that over and over in the story of Jesus. So then I go, well, now how do I live my life? Right? And again, I just think it's, to me, it's a, a turn in my head. But I think this whole, what did Jesus do, becomes really important for another reason. Because it goes deeper than just, how should I live my life right now? How should I live my everyday life? How should I live at work? But it penetrates down into the core of my being and how I understand the entire creation and my place in it. 
You are not a random string of DNA slapped into the world to live a meaningless life and then to die and return to dust. That is not who you are. You are created in the image of God and you are radically loved by Him. And this is really important. Life is not meaningless. You have been created in the image of God and you are loved by Him. Where do we see that love? We see the creator of the universe willing to come down to earth and become a human being. To be the ultimate image of God. To be the perfect and true image of God. To live on our behalf and to die for us. So when I failed to live out my created purpose, I remember what Jesus did. Because all of us do, right? We all fail to live out our created purpose. But when I do, I remember who Jesus is. He lived out that created purpose perfectly. And he did it for me, in my place. He did it for my sin. And to bring victory over sin and over death and over evil, and to one day come back and to set the world right. He has come to rescue me from the way sin has ruined his good world and has kept us from him. And so I am redeemed now. You are redeemed to live as a new creation in his world. To have life, and to have life to the full, as Jesus says in John. And to share the good news that Jesus has come and that Jesus will come again. And so we're going to take communion, and that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That recognition and that celebration that Jesus has come, and that Jesus will come again.